Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, your guide to everything love, sex, intimacy, and relationships. Each week, your host, Zach Beach, interviews new experts on love, including couples therapists, relationship coaches, sex educators, and best-selling authors. Learn the best tips and cutting-edge wisdom to better love yourself, others, and the world. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Zach Beach, and I'm here with the incredible psychology professor and author, Rich Savin-Williams. Hello, Rich, and welcome to the show. Thank you for the invitation. Today, we are going to be talking about what it means to be bisexual. And for those that don't know, Rich Savin-Williams is Professor Emeritus of Developmental Psychology at Cornell University and a licensed clinical psychologist specializing in identity, relationships, and family issues among sexual minority young adults. He is the author of nine previous books, including Mostly Straight, Sexual Fluidity Among Men, and The New Gay Teenager. He has served as a consultant for MTV, CNN, 2020, and The Oprah Winfrey Show, and his work has been cited in numerous publications, including Fortune, Newsweek, Rolling Stone, Time, and The New York Times. He's coming on to the show to talk about his new book, Simply Called Bi, Bisexual, Pansexual, Fluid, and Non-Binary Youth, which offers answers through the voices of young people who don't identify as either gay or straight. How are you today, Rich? I'm feeling very good. Thanks so much for coming on. So for decades now, you have been doing really amazing work in the world, focused on the world of gay and queer sexuality. Your second book, Gay and Lesbian Youth, Expressions of Identity, was published in 1990. So you've been doing this for a while, and I had just got to ask, like, what drives you? What motivates you? What keeps you going in this very interesting field of research? When I first came to Cornell, I came as an expert in adolescent development, social development, and I was very satisfied with that. Um, I studied self-esteem and sort of personality development. And then as I began to stay here longer, I began to realize I'm not totally straight. And this is something that I had inclinations of when I was an undergraduate but I denied and suppressed thanks to a a therapist who said, well, if you haven't had sex with a woman yet, then you're not gay. So, or homosexual was his word, I should say. So I decided that I wasn't. Then I went to graduate school, kept falling in love with guys, came to Cornell and said, okay, enough of this. I'm going to have to really sort of dig within myself. So I taught a course at Cornell on homosexuality. And the more I read, the more I discovered that researchers had gotten what I feel sort of the wrong message delivered, that they were not um, sort of corresponding to my experience because I was became the faculty advisor of the gay group on campus. And to me, the young men and women who came to the meeting were really creative, flexible, strong, resilient. And yet everything I was reading about gay youth from the established uh, literature was that they were depressed, suicidal, 
almost horrible human beings, uh, nice and creative maybe, but just not good. So that began my own research program. Cornell was very receptive. They sponsored it, they promoted it, and I just kept going. And once I got going, the questions kept coming up more and more and more. So I had to write. So what year was this? So I taught my first course in 1984. Okay. So in 1984, like what was the predominant messages and research coming out about gay youth? And then how did you kind of see it develop even with your own research over the next decade or two? Well, there were two articles that were published that everyone was citing and was taken as as gospel. One was based on um, male prostitutes, people, men kicked out of the um, armed forces, and um, people who were homeless and so forth. And so from that, I think that was uh, about 60 young men, uh, they came across as being very depressed, suicidal, having a thousand sex partners, and so forth. Um, The second one, which was a little bit more famous, was based on 33 gay male youth. And that portrayed basically all of them as being suicidal, cutting, anxious, depressed, really not really happy individuals. And again, that was sort of what was out there. And it was exactly contrary to my experience So the research was based primarily on these young men, and my experience was very different from that portrayal. And so I went to a conference sponsored by this researcher, and I attended two days, and it was all extraordinarily negative. Everything said about gay youth was very negative, and it said, essentially, they're homeless, they run away. They try to kill themselves and just everyone was in agreement. Oh, oh, those sorry, poor kids. And I was sitting there and asking some questions, but I was basically denied my own feelings or thoughts about it because it was out of step with the people who were invited to present their clinical cases or research. Wow. So this was, this is recently. (laughs) <laughs> and that's a that's a nice lesson in like really poor research, right? Small sample size, very specific population, extrapolating that to an entirely different population. I just read yesterday report by a major researcher in the field of gay studies who said that 20% of all gay youth, male and female, attempt suicide. And that's an astonishing percentage. And I believe the reality is probably 5% based on my reading of the literature. But again, there's a very strong impetus for portraying gay youth as being hopeless and mentally not well, because then you get resources and you get sympathy. And my perspective is, well, if it's not true, is that worthwhile? And maybe there's a different portrayal of our youth that might be more helpful for them, which is, hey, it's fun to be gay. Hey, you can be healthy and gay. You can live a great life. You can get married now. You can do a lot of things and be gay. So it's a very different portrayal and actually one that I prefer because I also think it's more honest. I prefer that one too. (laughs) Sounds a lot more positive. 
It almost reminds me a little bit of Dan Savage, It Gets Better campaign, you know, which is really targeted to certain youth and really troubling childhoods, troubling communities to realize that when you do get older and get out of perhaps the small town that you're in, things get a lot better and things get a lot more fun. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so our topic for today is actually on bisexuality. And before we get into what it means to be bisexual, I want to kind of go a little bit deeper into these terms. People don't realize that even the terms heterosexual, homosexual are recent inventions only coming to use in kind of the early 1900s. And if I'm not mistaken, they were never really used to describe like someone's internal stable identity. So for our listeners unfamiliar, like what changed in the cultural lexicon and how we use these terms? Well, very little changed for a number of years, it feels like to me. I mean, once Kinsey did his research and published sort of the sexual orientation spectrum going from zero, which was totally straight or heterosexual, he called it, to six being totally homosexual with the middle assuming to be bisexual, then there is a sense that he was referring not just to behavior, who you have sex with, but also in terms of who you fantasize about. But he never really saw these as being identity terms. Like he would be shocked if someone went around and said, oh, by the way, I'm gay or I'm bisexual. That's not what was happening in the 50s. But I think as the gay movement, liberation, whatever one wants to call it, began to progress, then I think it became more and more not just about sexual behavior, but also about who we love. And gradually, it became more and more about identity, because the sense was, well, you could be gay and be a virgin. So it had to be more than just simply sexual behavior. Though the assumption was, I think, that bisexual meant that you had sex with both sexes. But what did that mean, really? Was it equal? Was it, um, you know, if you had sex with, with nine women and one man, were you still bisexual in the same way than if it was reversed? So the sexual behavior got a little bit problematic. And so the identity really took off and became the way of referring to sexual minorities, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so interesting because I remember I was on the radio listening to a debate one time and there was a gentleman from the Christian right who was basically saying, you know, to us, there's no such thing as like a gay identity and gay is a behavior and it's a sinful behavior and people can choose whether or not to participate in it. Now, obviously, this is not this is not a point of view I ascribe to, but I often do think about like when we bring into this idea of like sexual fluidity, that our sexual identity can change over the course of many years, that bisexuality implies that you can be bisexual and be single and not having sex with anybody. And it does sort of imply like a choice that you do have. So how do we kind of balance between thinking that, okay, our sexuality is a fixed identity and therefore we do deserve a certain level of, say, basic human rights that comes with any sort of marginalized population with also accommodating for the fact that it is flexible, it does change. There is a fluidity both for men and women in terms of how their sexuality changes over the course of their life. Well, which question there would John (laughs) tackle first? So... I do believe that whether one is granted human rights or civil rights should have 
nothing at all to do with their identity. Or I don't believe it should have anything to do with who you prefer to have sex with, except for, of course, there's underage people, which is another issue altogether. But in terms of gender, that sh it should not be that way. And, and whether this is chosen, this who you have sex with or your identity, or whether it is somehow within you that you have no choice about should not matter at all. You still deserve basic human rights. And to try to deny that on the basis of identity or sexual behavior seems a little bit against uh, human rights to me, and I think to many others, that that should not be the issue. Now, it is clear the religious right is right in the sense that you can choose who you have sex with. You can also choose your identity. And they can show through their conversion therapy or whatever they want to call their therapy, certainly those things can change. What doesn't appear to change so much is the issue of sexual attraction. You can deny that you're sexually attracted to someone, that's for sure. But there's no evidence that any kind of conversion therapy actually changes the sexual attraction component. That doesn't mean that sexual attractions can't change over time, because they certainly can, as bisexual people clearly can show and demonstrate in their lives that they might be more sexually attracted to one gender this month and next month, perhaps being more sexually attracted to another person, or maybe it's just based on their gender expression, how masculine or feminine they are, or maybe it's based on the caliber of the person that they're attracted to. So bisexuals open up a huge box of possibilities. So I'm not sure if we covered it yet. What is your definition of bisexuality? Bisexual for me can be an identity. I know it can also be in terms of the genders that you are attracted to, whether male or female or intersex, I guess would be a third option. The question, though, is, is it only sexual or is it also romantic? And I happen to believe very strongly that who you love or fall in love with or become infatuated or develop a crush is just as important and maybe more important than who you have sex with. Because I think probably your ability to control who you have fa fall in love with maybe is not as easy as who you have sex with. So it's both attractions and behavior and desires and arousals and also identity. So it's a lot of different things packaged into one label, which we can get into more later, perhaps, but a lot of people who are bisexual, by my definition, wouldn't identify as bisexual, and they might not want to be labeled bisexual. So in my interviews with young men and women, I did not say the word bisexual. They had to say it. And if they liked that word or accepted it, then okay, I went with it. But they didn't have to say they were bisexual in order for me to interview them. They simply had to acknowledge that they are attracted to both sexes. 
it's such a wonderful complexity of just human life, right? This division between sex and love and arousal and behaviors and identities. And I kind of saved this question for later, but it's coming up now because I did want to ask you a little bit about some just interesting terms that I've seen mainly come out of the asexual community who often differentiate between sexual and romantic attraction. And will even use words like bi-romantic, homo-romantic, hetero-romantic. And in your book too, you differentiate between passionate and companionate love. And in your book, you also go into things like bromances and passionate friendships, right? So what have you found about sexual versus romantic attraction and how these play out in our lives? Well, it is certainly possible to fall in love with the gender that you are sexually attracted to. And that's usually the case. And though I'm not a neuroscientist, um, I have talked with neuroscientists who say that in the brain, those locations, if you will, are very close, close together. And they usually overlap entirely. But I'm now convinced after talking with these young people that it need not necessarily be the case for those two to be in sync. So, for example, I give an example of a young man who has um, sexual attractions to guys and he watches gay porn every day to be able to masturbate. And when he is with women, which he adores and loves, with all of his heart and soul. And I could tell it in the interview situation that he really, really, really likes women. The problem is that he's not quite sure that his penis loves women. (laughs) So what he does is he fantasizes gay porn while he has sex with women and thus can have sex with women. He doesn't tell the women what's going on in his mind because it would be harmful, hurtful, and they probably would reject him if they really knew what was going on in his mind. Finally, he met this gorgeous young woman, and he felt honest enough to tell her um, what was going on. And she said, great, because you're great. Whatever it is that's going on in your mind, I don't care. You know, it's you, it's present right now, and that's all I care about, not what's going on in your fantasy world. Wow. he was happy as could be. So there's that remarkable contrast. I don't think I had anyone that was quite as clear cut. Now, another example, young women who frequently really liked to have sex with men, but kept falling in love with their female friends. And they just sort of thought this was like the passionate friendships that they had read about that all women have, all women love their best friend. But some of these women began to realize, no, yes, the passionate love is there, but it's also lustful feeling as well. So for these women, it was like they began to realize that their romantic love could extend to their female friends. So yes, they are bisexual. They might never identify as bisexual, because they're having straight sex. And they might say, yes, I might, maybe I'm mostly straight, because I sort of would like to have sex with a woman if the right one came along. So again, this is part of the complexity of bisexuality that researchers 
really do not investigate or consider when they ask the question, are you gay, straight, or bi? Or don't know. Well, it seems a very challenging topic to research because you do have to figure out those categories like that you put people in. And it seems quite challenging to investigate the entire complexity of the human experience. I happen to think that the human experience is quite broad and we ought to not narrow it to little categories. And in this, I learned very much because I had in my past used the labels. And then when I began talking, that was, that was when I did survey research. And then when I began my career interviewing young people, and I've interviewed probably close to 400 at this point about their sexual and romantic development, they began to tell me, especially with millennials and the Zoomers, the Generation Z youth, that they hate the categories that adults seem to want to impose on them. And so when they get a questionnaire that says, you know, are you gay, straight, or bi, they might just skip the question, or they might tear up their questionnaire, or they just put down something that they're the closest to. So they might say, well, right now, I'm more attracted to men than women. So, you know, I'll put down heterosexual. So it's a complication that we have ignored. And yet, the vast majority of research on sexual minorities is based on these surveys. They're nationally based, we say. So they've got to be true, right? Well, not if you actually are not including the vast majority of bisexual people. So how can you know what bisexuals are or think or feel if you're omitting them, deleting them from your database? Right, you'll see a lot of like survey calls and it's like we're looking for gay men for example, and people that don't identify as gay, but maybe are romantically or sexually attracted to men end up not filling out the survey. So then you still have a very small subset of the overall population. Absolutely. And that's why I have a tendency to question this. this, I'll just be nice about it to question the results. Whenever I see that it appears to me that they got a very biased sample of individuals. And I just think that we, it's way too easy just to send out an online survey as becoming pretty typical now, not ask youth. I mean, it amazes me that if I were to go to, I'll invent this term, the top 20 gay researchers and ask them, have you ever talked with a gay person? <laughs> and I know that's very cynical, but I have the feeling many times, especially if their priority is gay youth and young adults, my fear is that the answer is no, not really. But that's not necessary, right? Well, maybe it is. So earlier when you were talking about people who might have sexual attraction to one gender and romantic attraction to another, my mind kind of went down the road of, say, non-monogamous and polyamorous relationships in terms of like, well, how are you going to navigate both of these simultaneous desires that you might have. So my first question is, in your experience, do you find that bisexual people, people that identify as bisexual, are more likely to be non-monogamous because they have certain desires that only one gender can fulfill? I have seen no research that addresses that issue, but my own interviews would lead me to believe that, no, they are not more likely to be non-monogamous as, as gays or straights. Now, they might shift genders 
for sure, or they may only want sex with one gender and not the other. But when they develop a relationship, some kind of a commitment, if you will, an attachment, then they are as true as anyone could expect them to be. I think what might be different is that they are more likely to negotiate to bring up the topic of non-monogamy with their partner. And in fact, as a clinician, sometimes when I see couples, actually most of the time when I see couples, this is an issue which they are addressing. Like, let's set down the rules. Let's reach an agreement. So they're far more honest and straightforward about their proclivities and what they would like. Now, I would say that they do not differ from gay and lesbian people in that arena. But I do think that there's a a wide variety, well, a contrast with with straight people in the willingness to talk and to discuss. So I'm curious about other stereotypes that might be around bisexuality, including the one I maybe just had, that bisexual people are more likely to be polyamorous, or some people might believe that they're more likely to cheat, for example. But there's some other negative stereotypes, including some people believing that like bisexuality is just a transition phase on the way to being fully gay or lesbian, or people have a certain level of internalized homophobia that they don't feel comfortable fully identifying as gay or lesbian. So then they do this sort of bi intermediary. So what are some more harmful stereotypes that you wish to dispel? Well, one that I heard from straight men when I interviewed them was that bisexuals are bisexual because they want to have more sex. That is, they want to be able to open up the marketplace for anybody. So their sense is that bisexuals have more sex, and that's why individuals would identify as bi. I find no evidence of that at all. Um, By talking with bisexual people, that is not in any sense of the word why they identify or believe that they are bisexual. The, the whole purpose of having more sex is just not in their, their mindset. They do say that they are more fluid. And I think there's a lot of research, a lot of research that says fluidity is far more prevalent among bisexual people, um, whether identified or not that way, than either gay or straight people, that they are more fluid and I think that's part of the reason why they're bisexual. I think, I think it sort of goes hand in hand, almost by the definition of fluidity, and that is that things change over time. And if they do, then you're more likely to be bisexual. So certainly, I think that that element is clearly present. I think one of the most destructive ones, and that was very much in the national press not that long ago, was that when the Olympic diver Tom Daly came out, and he's married, they have a son, and the gay press, if I can label it that way, and even Dan Savage for a little while until he, until he changed his view, which I was very happy about, was that, oh, he's really gay. Why doesn't he just come out as gay? Because he came out initially as bisexual, because he had sexual attractions to women. And some notable Gay, gay people said, oh, that was just a stepping stone on the way to being gay. I know because I did the same thing. I identified as bi before I became 
strong enough and happy enough and my self-esteem was high enough that then I knew what I really was, which was gay. So I think that is a hugely negative stereotype that disbelieves if you're male and bisexual, those two just don't go together. For women, yes. In fact, the opposite problem sometimes emerges for for women. And that is that there are some stereotypes that all women are bisexual. And I certainly talked with a number of women who had no interest at all in bisexuality. They were pretty firm that they were straight or lesbian. So the stereotypes end up making things easy for us to understand. And that's one of the main reasons why I I wrote the book and that I'm writing, because I want to make this far more nuanced and complex. And sorry, your silly little simple stereotypes just don't hold because they do not correspond with the way that real people lead their lives. And we ought to talk with them and we ought to believe what they tell us rather than us telling them what you ought to believe. And that's been the pattern in the 30 years that I've done research on this diverse group of individuals. I've also heard both of those ideas that you just mentioned. And it's weird to me how kind of biased it is and how overall as a society, we very much encourage, I'll say, female bisexuality. It's often encouraged in the media. And you do see things that say like all women are bisexual. And I swear every like human sexuality class that exists always points to that one study where they sh- they measured people's genital arousal depending on, on the porn that they were watching. And they were like, women were aroused no matter what. Therefore, they're bisexual. And as you just mentioned, the same thing that male bisexuality is often discouraged and male people, males who are bisexual are usually thought to be, oh, they're just gay and and dabbling. So where do you think these come from? Like, where do these biases come from? I'm not quite sure, except it almost feels like whenever a couple of major studies are done and by major figures then it just seems as if we all follow their lead somehow. And we keep citing the same people over and over and over again, maybe because it's simpler, it makes it easier to understand what's going on. So the research that I did was on pupil dilation rather than genital arousal, because you can control genital arousal. You know, just all you have to do if you're a male is start thinking about your grandmother for example, and you won't get um, so enlarged, your penis will not. But with pupil dilation, you have no choice in the matter. And your pupils dilate according to what excites you or interests you, um, is very appealing to you. So that research pretty clearly demonstrated that there are true bisexual people among men. And that has now been replicated several times But the women continue to not show a preference except for lesbians, self-identified lesbians, do have a, are more attracted to women. But all the other women, which means the other 95 or 98 percent, don't seem to have a bias in terms of male or female. Now, what does that mean? I'm not quite sure. And there are a number of people sort of struggling with that issue. Other people don't say, basically say, I don't care. 
it's just the way it is. You know, let's accept people for who they are and what they are and not rely on biological measures because they don't work. Well, does that mean we ought to ditch them? I don't think so, but it does make it more complicated. And there, there is a sex difference in terms of physiological measures of sexual orientation. Now, my preference would have been if I had continued to conduct this research is to try to get romantic orientation assessed. Now, would that be something that would distinguish the women in terms of if we showed love scenes or cuddling or kissing? I don't know. But you notice that all of these physiological measures are based on males and work with males. And they seem to, you know, sort of somehow or the other sort of prefer men as their subjects. But why not turn it around and let's use women as the primary um, vehicle to try to understand sex and romance? That's so interesting because I know for a lot of academics, it's an incredibly hot button issue to come out with kind of any study that says like men are better or more inclined to be like this and women are more inclined or better to be like this because then the media is going to latch onto it and be like, are you saying, you know, women can't be CEOs? And they're just like, I'm just researching here. <laughs> But another challenge with research is just getting the funding. So I'm kind of curious in your decades of work of doing research into really important issues, kind of what challenges you have had around both getting the funding in order to research into behaviors of sexual minorities. And also if you've had any pushback when you do publish something and it goes against, you know, it's not so politically correct, the results that you've found. Well, certainly the big issue for so many years and during most of my most productive years of doing research is that I could never get research monies to look at what goes right with diverse sexual populations. That is, no one was going to fund my research if I said I'm out to show that gay people have some strengths. For example, they're more artistic or more cognitive flexible, or more empathetic. And that those I use those three because I did some trial research which indicate exactly that point, that gay and lesbian bisexual people were more of those than straight people. And I did that with a graduate student. And he tried to get it published, couldn't publish it. I tried to get grant money, didn't work. Why? Because all of the money is basically devoted to what goes wrong. Now, I can't oppose that. Absolutely. I was very much in favor of research monies going to stop AIDS, um, to stop youthful suicide or depression. Well, of course, that's important. But it would have been nice to have had some money for positive things, too. Just wasn't uh, going to happen. So that was the biggest obstacle for me. Now, fortunately, I did find an external funder, private individual fund that did provide some monies for that purpose. Um, and that was huge, the Bisexual Institute. So it happened, but it was difficult. Publication-wise, I will never know. But I do know that I had an article, which I thought was one of my very best, on suicidality. And I submitted it to medical journal, one of the top medical journals and one of the top public health journals, and they all rejected it for reasons that I think were absolutely incorrect, because what they did was they showed, my research showed that 
gay youth, diverse youth, were no more likely to attempt suicide than straight youth. That was absolutely against uh, sort of accepted knowledge, if you will. So it was rejected, and it never has been accepted, though I have been prone to put it in books, which cannot be rejected by editors and reviewers. But this is not surprising. Academics get very set on their research agenda, and they do not really want counter evidence. Well, it's so interesting to me because it brings up a little bit to me nature versus nurture. Like I could totally see a gay youth, their brain not having any predisposition to suicidality, but absolutely they live in a society that's very homophobic. Maybe they were bullied as a kid and it might increase these rates. But it's interesting to hear your research saying that's not the case. So I almost feel like therefore gay youth are more resilient. And stronger. (laughs) Well, you can't publish that point of view, by the way. (laughs) Well, so here's an example that illustrates what I'm talking about. So when I did some research on on men and on suicidality, when I compared them with straight guys, they looked more suicidal. When I compared them with women, there was no difference. Now, why are we comparing, I'll just say, gay guys to straight men? When we already have this assumption that gay men are, quote unquote, women, you know, are girl-like, are female-like. So why don't we compare them to women? If, if we really believe that, why don't we compare them to women? And lo and behold, there's not much of a difference. Now, why is that the case? I believe that gay male youth could be saying that they are suicidal because they are more insightful. They're more in tune to what's going on within themselves. They do not feel hesitant to say what's going through them. And if they're kind of down or low or suicidal, they might say so, where a straight man would never say those words because that's not manly. That's not masculinity. So is it really not a measure of sexuality, but a measure of gender that makes for the suicidality of gay male youth? And that's something which I happen to believe, but I haven't shown it in my research. I haven't proven it because I've retired. (laughs) I mean, I'm writing books now, not doing research. So I can suggest these ideas but I might not do them myself. Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, there's just so many questions that we have yet to have the answers for. When you were talking about having trouble getting research around what's going right, I was thinking just about how the entire field of positive psychology is still very young. And combine that with the new research on sexual minorities, that's also very young. And we have to simultaneously, as new research comes out, really unpack and undo all that, I'll just say bad research research that happened years ago. And along with new research coming out, as we already talked about, it's challenging to just do any research at all because of the complexity and the diversity of the human experience. And you mentioned earlier that younger people are very averse to any sort of category around how they see themselves, whether it's their gender or their sexuality. And we do see a number of new words coming into the public lexicon, including pansexual, demisexual, some people say asexual, bicurious. Queer has been around for a while, but of course it's changed what it used to mean at the beginning. And also, depending on the context, it can mean very different things. 
So what are we to make of all these new terms, which I feel like to the people that use them, it's quite liberating. But for the people unfamiliar, it's confusing. (laughs) And I sometimes receive calls from parents who say to me, sometimes out of the blue, I don't know them at all, but they'll say, my child says he or she is blank. What does that mean? And so I sort of go through some of the possibilities. And but I ultimately always land on the issue. Why don't you ask? And that's something very few parents seem to understand or do. Like, if you want to know about your child's sexuality or romantic desires, ask. If you don't know the term, ask. What do you mean when you say demisexual or pansexual or non-binary? And it's striking that the parent would turn to, quote, unquote, an expert, when the real expert is right there in front of them. So I do believe that these terms are very ambiguous at times. I find it extraordinarily difficult to come up or to stay, you know, sort of modern or up to date on these terms and what they mean. Sometimes I have to like, oh, yeah, go to the urban dictionary and go, oh, yeah, right. What does that mean? Because it is complex, but I find that magical. I find that inspiring, and it makes me want to do more research rather than an anonymous questionnaire to 50,000 young people, because I think you learn a lot more. And I, I think of, of one example where I was at a, um, a youth conference speaking on sexual identity was my topic. And this was one for middle school and high schoolers. And I was in a large auditorium. I was not expecting 100 or so kids, but the 100 or so kids came up. I started giving my PowerPoint and I could just tell it wasn't working, you know, that um, there was scribbling, reading of phones and so forth. And so in desperation, or actually it's more my, my style. So I just stopped and said, okay, what, how do you identify yourself? And of course there was dead silence. And then this, this young woman stood up and she said, I describe myself as squiggly. Okay, dead silence. And then (laughs) bursting of laughter and said, me too, me too. And all these kids started standing up. I like squiggly. And then I just sat back and I listened and I took notes, by the way, to the conversation because they taught me so much more than I ever knew from reading about sexual identity and these new terms. And I would say, I don't understand that term. And they go, well, they were the experts now. So they told me what that term meant to them. So it's, it's not difficult. It really is not difficult. But if you're a parent who's never talked to your child about sex, maybe it is difficult to talk about sexual identity. Yeah, I'd love to go a little bit more into that. And this is kind of like our little last question here before my final question. But how we can better love our children as Mm -hmm. they do explore and discover their own unique sexuality. As you mentioned, you know, parents come to you and they don't know, you know, they don't know the terms, you know, they want, maybe they have very firm beliefs about like, you know, allowing a child to be what they are, but then certain transgender ideas come up and then they get a little lost 
And, you know, this is the Learn to Love podcast. And for me, it's just like, how can we best love our little ones as they grow up and explore and make their own mistakes and might live in a world that we as adults did not grow up in? For me, the biggest issue is to talk with your child from day one. You know, sexual romantic feelings are some of the earliest memories of a child. And when I asked my interviewees the age of your first sexual memory, they would remember back to age three, four, or five, and they frequently talked about a crush or a romantic feeling. And it felt like to me that the parents didn't know that. And because I would ask, did, who did you tell? Oh, no one. Did you tell your parents? Oh, no, I would never talk to my parent about this. So somehow... I think it's the responsibility of a loving parent to talk with their child from day one about love and sex and to respect them and to say, essentially, it doesn't matter what you say. I want to understand your perspective. I will love and support you regardless. And when things evolve, change, I hope you will keep me informed because I would love to know about your life and how you experience your romantic and sexual feelings. I think that's so important to just always have that dialogue open because a lot of parents do start way too late. You know, they think, oh, you're 15. So I'd like to give you the talk about (laughs) the birds and the bees. And they're like, yes, child's like, yes, what would you like to know? (laughs) (laughs) Or what frequently happens is the child says, I already know all that. And the parent says, oh, good. (laughs) End of conversation. Or or my favorite is a young man who was leaving for, uh, he was 16, 17 years old, and he was leaving the house for um, his first date. And the father says, shouts out, be safe. And the boy goes, yeah, okay. And as he was driving, he thought it meant drive safely. But then he then came to understand, oh, he was wondering if I had condoms. (laughs) And this was the only time that his father ever talked to him about sex, was to yell, be safe. That's not my definition of love, of a loving act. I won't say the father didn't love him. It just was not a loving act. Well, that's a beautiful segue to my final question that I love to ask all of my guests, which is quite simply, what do you wish everyone knew about love? I would want everyone to know that love begins very early in life and it takes different manifestations. And I think we ought to be aware and sensitive to the different ways in which it manifests itself. And it may not always be what we anticipate or expect. And that's why I think we have to ask whenever we can and that It may be possible, if you're interested in the sexuality of your child, to find out first what is the romantic orientation of your child. I do believe, though I don't have great proof, that love actually may precede sex in terms of an orientation. That is, a child may know who they keep falling in love with and are attracted to sort of emotionally before they know they want to have sex with that individual. 
Well, I appreciate all the research that you've done because it just opens so many doors. And I look forward to all these questions that came up on this podcast to be answered by future researchers who have built off the research that you have done. And I appreciate you coming out with this wonderful book, Bi, Bisexual, Pansexual, Fluid, and Non-Binary Youth. And for our listeners who want to learn more about you, how can they find you? Well, I am on the Cornell's Department of Psychology website. And that would be the best way to contact me. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Rich Seven Williams, for coming on to the show, for sharing us your wisdom and inspiring ideas about love and expansive research that you have done into this very important world. I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day. Thank you so much. Thank you for the invitation. Thanks again for listening to the Learn to Love podcast. To learn more about the show and your host, head over to ZachBeach.com or TheHeartCenter.com. You can also follow Zach on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 